offshore, finding a, a position on the rocky groins, looking west into the sun, the sitting sun, and being baked under this bleaching light. He uh, was slashed in the neck with a knife when confronting a convict escapee in uh, High Street in Fremantle. So, you know, her relationship with Fremantle and Perth was, was difficult. I guess the audience was slow to come to terms with her, her painting. He documented the events, the sights and sounds, if you like, of um, Fremantle that, in that, at that time during the defence of the America's Cup. Do you think at a time like this where everyone is kind of jolted and anxious and, and generally thinking about who we are and what the hell is going on, art collections can be useful to draw on to remind us who we are? You know, they, they give a, a community a sense of identity and that we've been through struggles before. Yes, I think that's right. Welcome to the Fremantle Art Centre podcast. My name is Davey Craddock. I program the music at the Art Centre, but today we are heading into the galleries, much like a visit to the Art Centre itself. You can now grab a coffee. We've had two episodes of Rock and Roll, and this is going to be a bit of a quiet walk through the galleries with uh, the curator of the City of Fremantle Art Collection, Andre Lipscomb. We asked Andre to select six significant works from our collection. While we can't show it to you physically, we usually do alongside all of our exhibitions we have work from the collection displayed but Andre has picked six really interesting works and is talking us through those in this episode so it's really a virtual gallery tour and to get the most out of this episode if you click the show notes or head to our website we've set up a site where you can see these works as Andre discusses them which you really need to do to get the most out of this episode. Now, the City of Fremantle collection has more than 1,500 works in it. It was established in 1958, and as the works that Andre will be discussing show, it is really a very diverse collection. Andre discusses works from 1893, painted by one of Fremantle's early harbour masters, George Forsyth, a beautiful painting looking out to sea that says a lot about early colonial Fremantle. And then we have more contemporary works, depictions of the America's Cup, some beautiful photography from the America's Cup, and then Aboriginal perspectives and depictions of Fremantle or Walulup, which are also very interesting. So make sure you click the link so that you can see these images while Andre discusses them, and uh, we'll get straight into it. A virtual gallery tour with the City of Fremantle Collections curator, Andre Lipscomb. I hope you enjoy this. The Fremantle Art Collection was established in about 1958 with a significant donation of historical Australian pictures. Uh, by Claude Hodgson, who was a, a local philanthrop- art philanthropist, and um, and from that point, the, the city's collection really didn't develop until the establishment of the Fremantle Arts Centre in 1973. So that program and the the range of activities associated with the Arts Centre fostered a, uh, I guess, a developing awareness and sensitivity to building a collection, in particular of local. Practitioner, work local practitioners, and build a nucleus of work around the um, the historical collection. Do you think at a time like this, where everyone is kind of jolted and anxious, and and generally thinking about who we are and what the hell is going on, art collections can be useful to draw on to remind us who we are? You know, they they give a, a community a sense of identity, and that we've been through struggles before. Yes, I think that's right. I think that the uh, the substance of the collection, because it draws on and, and re- references so many experiences in relation to place, the activities of people, whether it's work or leisure, whether it's circumstances of family life, whether it's the events that impact on us dramatically like war, 
events like uh, this COVID-19 experience, as well as the kind of related um, broader psychological shape of the uh, of the population, if you like, or the, individual, or the experience of the individual to deal with these sorts of circumstances. So there's, there's various facets within the body of the collection that can be drawn on uh, to represent and to really start a conversation really about the uh, experience of... Uh, particularly living in Fremantle or living in uh, Western Australia at this time. I think that, um, you know, audiences will come to a collection and bring what they, the tools that they have with them to to looking at pictures, of course, in exhibitions, but invariably, and I, I think this is much the case in terms of my conversation with other colleagues, is that uh, the circumstance of looking at working with collections at this time and, and post-COVID means that, or suggests that uh, we have changed and how we look at, our work, at the work of the collection uh, will, will, will modify and will also change with us. And that to the circumstance by which we kind of value the significance of the collection, if you like, uh, will, will alter because of the events that have occurred uh, in the recent uh, months. So let's start, if it's okay with you, um, George Forsyth's work, um, the, uh, for, you know, a view of Arthur Head. Would you like to start with that work? And so just to explain to the listener, yeah. the idea here is we'll be hosting these works on a website and then as Andre talks us through the collection, you, you yourself can view, view the work as well. I've selected a, a small group of works that does connect with Fremantle, both the historical collection but also uh, contemporary perspectives and art practice um, but there's to sort of create a something of a timeline if you like of uh, how artists responded to the subject of Fremantle and there's re- references to landscape there's also references to community and so on and uh, so we can start with George Forsyth certainly he's a, a work that's coming to the collection relatively recently through the develop through the working with the inventory and developing uh, looking at the civic collection of the city um, uh, 18 months ago, uh, I was delighted to uh, uncover a work by George Forsyth, who I had some knowledge of in terms of the colonial uh, artists that were working WA in the in the in the in the 1860s and so on. But um, this painting came to light when we deframed the work and it revealed a signature and a date of March uh, 1893, and uh, it's the only known oil that we that's um, that uh, Forsyth made in in Fremantle. Um, A couple of others I think have come to light since, but this important work of a view of of Arthur Head, looking looking west really from Ferry Point, which is a landform that no longer exists in Fremantle. So even though it's painted in 1893, uh, analysis suggests that the view is of Fremantle Harbour in about the 1870s when George Arthur Forsyth was the uh, harbour master at Fremantle and uh, he was long retired from his role at the city, uh, at the at the town of, in his role, I should say, at Fremantle. Um, I read he had a very kind of colourful life with shipwrecks and he had his throat slit and he was quite a colourful hmm. character, Andre. Yeah, he was. Look, he was a. He came up from the ranks, so he was a mariner. So he um, he did have some uh, training uh, to be a uh, to be a as many young men did in, in, and women did in those days is to uh, have some training in drawing and watercolor painting and so on as part of their upbringing and sort of capturing uh, uh, 
experience of daily life and so on. So he had those that skill set, but he was a mariner and he came to Fremantle in the 1860s and was in, found himself stuck here uh, in a small in a relatively small colony and established a, um, a role here. He gained a, a, a job at the harbour. He was also involved uh, with um, the harbour police, I think, for a time where he was his job was to sort of uh, cap, recapture absconding convicts and so on. So he he um, was very much involved in the early colonial life of Fremantle. And as you said, he uh, was slashed in the neck with a knife when confronting a convict escapee in uh, High Street in Fremantle during that for that role. Because it's, so it's a dangerous job. But it, not, but it was when he uh, was appointed a pilot at Fremantle and eventually became the, the, the harbour master. Uh, because he was a man of good standing, a Christian um, a spirit, you know, temperate nature and so on. And he um, was appointed in that role. Um, and, and in those days, most harbour masters were ex-royal seamen, you know, like um, uh, sailors and so on, you know, with, with captains and so on and, and, and uh, ranked officers in the Navy. And uh, But he was a, come from a, a working-class background. But anyway, he found his place in that role. And in that early phase of his, um, his responsibilities, he, stud- he drew and painted various architectural um, uh, examples around Fremantle, particularly around the harbour. And so on, and uh, and of Rottnest and what have you. But this work, the painting itself, is a summation of those kind of experiences because the work itself represents a view uh, in retrospect, and uh, it re- represents Fremantle long before uh, the development of the new harbour. And certainly, when and when in 1893 the new harbour was well underway in terms of its construction. This, this is the O'Connor the O'Connor uh, harbour I'm speaking about. Yeah. And uh, so the sandbar so uh, that O'Connor dredged out would still be in this painting. That's right. So the the, the, the marshy, wide open spaces of the Swan River mouth um, was, is depicted in the picture. So there's a lot of uh, marshy country, wide open. Yeah. The ferry point was a wide open sandy bar. The rock bar was still in place between the two headlands yeah. um, and so on. So it represents kind of the... The waters in which they were in the early phase, and 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 the circumstances by which um, vessels entering Fremantle or coming to the mouth and, and offloading their stores and and, and human cargo um, had to be negotiated from Rottnest to to get through Gage Rose and to to Fremantle. So that was a very treacherous bit of water, and the mouth of the river was a a constant hurdle for, for negotiating the development of um, and growing the the, um, the port and, and the colony. Yeah. So it really, really shows a different world. And, and in, the, in the painting, in the detail of the picture, you'll see that um, there's a number of references to damaged uh, vessels. There's a couple yeah. of little sort of sunken vessels in, in the in the shallows, which is you know, which is a reference to obviously the, um, the struggle and the, the ship numerous shipwrecks that occurred around Fremantle. And as you say. Um, George was involved in a number of them and, and undertook quite some heroic tasks trying to save vessels and so on, get people off um, larger vessels that were run aground um, south of yeah. Fremantle and so on. So he, had, he um, had the ability to capture this particular view uh, at a time, and I think there's a large, massive uh, head storm front approaching there the is. town. So it's yeah, a very dramatic a picture. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. So the northwesterly gale that's blowing into the into the into the colony, bl- pushing these sorts of uh, white-capped um, waves across uh, the shallow waters. 
yeah. and what have you, um, are indicative of the struggles of dealing living in that sort of that time and place. Yeah, I love that. Um, it's a view so many people who live or work in Fremantle would know. For me right now, this one's hitting hard because during when the virus was hitting, my colleague and I would grab continental rolls and <laughs> head to the harbour or head to the water, you know, the social distancing idea, and we'd kind of nibble a roll, I reckon, very close to where he would have been painting this. So it's it's a view everyone knows. It's somewhere we've all hung out. I think you're right. People who frequent South Mole know the kind of view out to the ocean yeah. and know the, the coming and going of vessels and so on. Of course, these days the uh, harbour is really a channel. It's it's deep, it's yeah. narrow, and it's uh, the removal of the rock bar and, and those natural features allows the ingress of salt water right. and, and, and salinity to really reach right up into places like Bassendine and Guildford. And yeah. so the... the, uh, the the nature of the river has changed dramatically from that from that from that moment, and uh, this picture captures though, that time before that work was underway. And um, so it's melancholy, I think, and it's uh, it's dramatic, um, uh, but it's a thoughtful picture that really uh, reaches back into into the consciousness of a of, a, of a, an older guy who's who'd seen seen all the tragedies of the early colony and so on, uh, and um, and. Uh, did uh, unfortunately lose his ro- job through difficult circumstances, and uh, and died relatively young, um, um, uh, but um, lived a full and an interesting life and painted uh, brilliantly well. Really, well, that guides us pretty nicely, given that we're talking about a kind of landscape affected by C.Y. O'Connor into Kathleen O'Connor, his daughter. So one of the other works you selected is her still life with flowers, which we think was painted sometime between 1935 and 1939. Can you tell me why you selected that work? Yes, look, uh, you know, the O'Connors have a, a connection, a deep connection to Fremantle, C.Y., and the, 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 directly to the, obviously the development of the uh, New Harbour and so on. I mean, Kathleen, um, as you said, one of his many daughters. Um, she was always an artistic spirit and a, a free thinker, really, independently minded. Um, so this picture, interestingly, wasn't painted in Fremantle. It was painted in Paris uh, before the Second World War and um, really after uh, CY's passing um, and rather tragic death and so on uh, and all the fallout around that and the impact on the family. She she travelled to uh, to to Paris in about 1905 with her family, with mother and and, and sister, and um, and she always wanted to be an artist. She was trained to be an artist in Perth, and just after the uh, the century, uh, and in Perth, and she really embraced and wanted to embrace as a, as a woman in the 30s by this stage um, uh, an artistic life. And Paris was a centre of the arts and was becoming was growing to be an important place internationally. So, if you wanted to be an artist at that time, after 1910, you went to Paris, and that's where all the heavyweights were working, all the playwrights, the poets, the painters, and so on. It was a cheap place to work, live, um, and 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 full of life and, and music and and so on. The effect of jazz culture and Bohemia was well underway and all that. So she indulged and uh, really embraced that way of life and supported by her family. She lived in Paris and painted there and uh, painted in uh, London eventually, and in Brittany and so on. So she, she was very much a, a European painter, really, not a, not a Perth painter. She, um, she wanted to be an internationalist um, and she embraced being an artist uh, 
in her middle years uh, with with everything she had and uh, lived a really frugal life in Paris. And is there not a sense when she came back that, you know, Western Australia didn't necessarily appreciate her? Did did she not have a bit of an uneasy relationship with Western Australia on her return? Yes, yeah, look, she never wanted to step foot in WA again, really, and um, and uh, to return, I mean, I mean, after, just before the war, she had to flee to from Paris to uh, to London, and unfortunately, her entire studio and all her store, probably of materials and paintings, no doubt, uh, were, were destroyed by, by the conflict, bombing and so on, so she lost everything. And uh, in 48, 1948, she returned to Fremantle for a short time, Really, on the inf- influence of her family and uh, penniless, relatively, and um, and was horrified, uh, you know, in terms of uh, what she found. Very much a backwater, both in Fre- and certainly Fremantle in those days. Uh, but Perth was still a very quiet place, and uh, she hankered for the excitement of Paris, and didn't last long really in Perth. And returned in the fifties back to uh, back to Paris. So you know her relationship with Fremantle and Perth was was difficult. She um, it was slow. The I guess the audience was slow to come to terms with her her painting, even though broadly her painting is relatively conservative in terms of subjects of portraits and still life, as this one is. Um, uh, but she embraced the kind of, I guess, the latter and post-impressionist style of painting uh, with a flourish, um, uh, and she um, remarkably was slow to get the recognition that she felt that she de- she, uh, she desired and she, she needed. But she did return to Paris uh, in frustration, really, uh, in the 50s, and once again fell into some struggle because of the cost of living in, in the Paris in the post-war period was very high. She struggled to sustain herself and uh, and really loved, lived off the kindness of others, essentially, uh, uh, and um, and eked out an existence until she came back as a much older woman to, to Perth to live out her final years. You know. So for you, is it much more about the story as opposed to the painting. I mean, this still happens to artists today. It sounds like it's a bit of a kind of cultural cringe story that you're talking about, this idea that artists, whether they be musicians or painters, need to be validated overseas before coming back, that that hmm. that, that is a tick of approval, which I don't think happens as much today. But it, do you think this is about um, Western Australia developing its own artistic identity? Uh, you know, is, is that why you selected this one as opposed to the work itself? It's a story about, you know, um, people getting respect and, and, and chops overseas and, and coming back and whether they're accepted or not. Mm. Yeah, it's a co- look, this is a broad conversation really about uh, um, the trajectory of artists, artistic talent and practice. I mean, you, I think you've got to get out and you've got to leave somewhere, particularly you've got to leave Australia to uh, to connect with uh, other audiences and what's going on out elsewhere to some degree. And, uh, and artists do that today, go on, on, on travels and uh, uh, sojourns into the uh, Northern Hemisphere and go and look at galleries and museums and so on. This is part of normal practice. So Kathleen was really before her time really as a, as a practitioner. She was driven to do that, um, and she really wanted to connect with the the wider world, and so that's a really part of a consistent part of artistic practice. And I think that in terms of how I've how I respond to her work today, and she's an important practitioner in in Australian terms, and she also had connections to Fremantle, which were, which were strong. Um, but we've got a substantial collection of, of Kathleen's work in, in the in the uh, the art collection. It's, it's probably the largest collection of painting. 
of Catherine O'Connor's in the country, thanks to the generous gift of um, certainly of, of Claude Hotchin, but also the family of the O'Connor family made a substantial gift of her pictures right. in the uh, early uh, uh, 1970, late 1970s. And so that bonding, if you like, that bond between the O'Connor clan and ourselves and uh, the city of Fremantle and uh, and her is uh, really a, a uh, one of us, really one of the, the Fremantle community, I suppose. Um, yeah. In a broader sense, that uh, it's great to have her in the collection, and we've got a lovely uh, spread of works. And the still life subjects are very strong. So this picture is particularly strong in itself. It's vibrant. It's uh, it's uh, full of colour. There's a beautiful treatment of the paint across the painting. It's very consistent with her work of that period, and probably her work between late seventies, uh, sorry, the late nineteen twenties up to the Second World War is probably some of her best stuff. Right. Uh, still life pictures in the state gallery for example are, are wonderful and she's regularly she's a regular um, inclusion into major exhibitions about australian painting in the 1930s and many of them in fact are expats from um, people who lived overseas for a large period of time mm-hmm. and so on so she's a part of that group, larger group and she's one of one of one of our own so um it's it's an important part of our collection our holding more broadly and it's an important historical kind of cornerstone to um to the other components of the historical uh, collection as, as well. So, Andre, let's move on to Sharon Egan's work, While You're Up Dreaming, from 2002, which also has the Swan River as a focus. Tell me a bit about that. Mm, this is a great work. Uh, Sharon Egan is an important Western Noongar um, work artist, and she's um, she's a sculptor, weaver, and and, uh, and painter, and certainly um, this work was pr- produced... <laughs> In free, can you hear that dog? I can. In, in free, <laughs> <laughs> We're in the field. Got, this is real life. Gonna, yes, that's right. That's right. Um, uh, so she she produced this in two thousand and two, but um, and it was a prelude to a major exhibition that I was uh, I was involved with uh, in two thousand and four called Wally Up Dreamings. Um, but this work is kind of a staging point for that exhibition to some extent. Sharon Egan was uh, a co-curator of that project uh, back then and um, and helped to pull together the community exhibition and worked with the curator myself to develop the, um, the exhibition more broadly uh, and particularly the interpretation around um, conversations about Indigenous culture and, and, and uh, dreaming about about Fremantle waters and the, particularly the Durable Yarragon, the Swan River and its trajectory to the mouth of the river and so on. And uh, and it reflects, if you like, on uh, George Forsyth's picture as well. Yeah. So what we've got what we've got in terms of Sharon's um, triptych are three panels, um, three panels in black, red and yellow predominantly, and at the core of the pictures are um, representations of the of the water features of the mouth of the river, and there's some details there as well. You, you clearly see um, the islands off the coast and the shape of the uh, the river mouth and so on, certainly prior to uh, settlement, the white man's arrival, as well as, as post-period. Um, and the removal of the rock bar across the mouth and so on. Um, so these are quite dramatic pictures, largely in, you know, the, the tonality is uh, is vivid in terms of uh, the black and white appearance of the of the forms and, uh, and has a very visceral kind of, for me at least, a very visceral kind of representation of the, uh, if you like, connecting the, the, the landscape to, to the people and to the, to the human body and to the kind of workings of the 
spirit, and uh, she does it brilliantly in these three panels. Um, and dotted around the edge of these panels um, are images that have been uh, photographs that have been cut um, from uh, prints and and then arranged to create this kind of tableau of uh, moments. Of, uh, of individuals and groups and family groups, um, uh, local indigenous people yeah. and their relationship to country. So there's kind of a, a contemporaneous kind of element as well as this kind of grainy underpinning of the, of the representation of the, uh, the landforms and they, the land and the water and so on. They're quite nostalgic as well. They have those kind of family film quality, uh, photo quality about them, you know, the kind of shoebox of photos under the bed feeling. They, they're very intimate. They, they, you know, that kind of, the, in the way that film photos are, a lot of them seem to be film photos, are they? Perhaps not. Maybe they've just got a treatment. That, there's, there's this weird intimacy in that they look like someone's private family photos as opposed yeah. to portraits. Yes, they do have, they're a print, I presume they're digital prints, so they're cut from paper and they have a kind of a slightly grainy, muted appearance. They're not shiny and so on. So they sit into the surface of the picture, into the surface of the paint film really well. And they, but so they have that uh, uh, immediate sort of connection to the surface of the painting and that makes it very, um, you know, very immediate and very uh, resolved appearance. But mm. yeah, I think you're right. The, uh, they're very intimate and they're very uh, telling in terms of the relationships of people within the, uh, the pictures. Are, are they and Sharon's they, family or friends or where, where were the photos gathered from? Do we know? They're all, they're both. They're, right. they're, they're the broader community, community events and, and close knit um, friends and family. Right. So they do uh, connect in various ways, and I think the embedding those images in Yarragon and the um, and the Wailup country, if, you know, and, and and so on, and the and the and the stories about the development and the, the shaping of the river, and the important role of the Wagle in terms of um, in terms of dreaming, in terms of constructing and forming the shape of the river, and so on. Um, this is quite a lovely kind of relationship uh, between the silhouette of the river space as well as community, young people, and the, and the, really the emerging culture or the existing and growing culture of Indigenous and uh, yeah. Wajak people uh, in, our, in our area, in our region. There's a definite river through line in all the works you've selected. Another of the works we've, we've got here is Kevin Ballantyne's photo series Cup City, which I absolutely loved, these stark black and white photos taken during the America's Cup. Can you talk us through those, Andre? Yeah, sure. They're, they're, these are delightful group. These are five images from a much larger group that uh, Kevin Ballantyne produced um, between 1983 and 1987. And certainly um, he was a, a, he's a wonderful eye, obviously, and a long-time photographer and academic, but he... Um, he documented the events, the sights and sounds, if you like, of um, Fremantle that, in that, at that time during the defence of the America's Cup. And, which, and of course, in 86, 87, when that was underway, Fremantle was transformed um, as a bit of a mecca, a local mecca for, for tourists and, uh, and, uh, and international visitors and so on, and underwent uh, some change in terms of how the city functioned and so on, level of investment and what have you. But Kevin had a more of a grassroots perspective and, uh, and captured some wonderful images of streetscapes, of um, the kind of infrastructure around the cup, all the various promotional tents and and the um, wonderful billboards and uh, images and signage and so on, but also uh, wonderful groups of um, 
visitation, if you like, groups of young people um, yeah. wandering the streets, in, in you know, couples and family groups, who both in the town but also uh, on the foreshore on the rocky groins, straining to see some evidence of the America's Cup taking defence taking place, which in fact took um, place well off the coast. And um, some of the, the group that we have um, tell the something of the the tale of that experience of fronting up to the seashore, finding a, a position on the rocky groins, looking west into the sun, sh- the sitting sun, and being baked under this bleaching light, but also um, strained to see anything at all. And yeah. some of the, the, the individuals in these images uh, are kind of wondering what all the fuss is about and, yeah. and just looking at each other. And, and all of a sudden, uh, these groups of people, the family groups, the pushers and all the, um, the various um, – excited uh, uh, spectators are wondering why they're there and um what makes them become... so Western Australian though is the light, they're so washed out. They're, they're yeah. almost like monochromatic. They're like stark white and stark black, some of them. you can. It, I think you have to have lived here to get that, but it's just that baking sun comes through in them. You could imagine it, couldn't you, in the height of summer in the afternoon looking at the westerly setting sun yeah. and, and the brightness of the, of the, and the temperature. So, and the audience look a bit bemused and they're looking at each other and there's kind of a, a tableau of beautiful figures that he's been able to identify in these groups that yeah. are rather languid and, and they're, they're almost posed. He's, he's, he's obviously takes a, a number of images and, and, and has, has selected these, a sequence of uh, images of, for this particular Cup City group. Which is quite extensive, um, and as in the, within the series, there's an, you know images of some, as you said, a signage. There's a, a wonderful image of a a, a, um, a sea container modified, which has been modified as a um, promotional kind of um, tent, if you like, for for um, various t-shirts and all the sort of merchandise. The day from WA. They're that. so kitsch. There's this '80s <laughs> kitsch, which now is kind of super trendy. Looking at these photos now. Um, yeah, the, the aesthetic is kind of fashionable right now <laughs> that, he's, that he's photographed. I love the one. Yeah. There's, there's this bizarre picture of a man in a, a kangaroo suit staring at this kid, and it's kind of creepy. It's just it's it's very odd and weird. Exactly. Now the the punk, of course, the boxing kangaroo was a, a powerful uh, icon yeah. of the cup defence. And it was part of the uh, really part of the uh, the iconography of that whole effort, the political as well as broader cultural effort around the cup. And uh, to have that uh, rather deflated looking creature um, <laughs> under under that glaring light amongst that group of people is a, is a particularly unnerving image. And I think Kevin was able to tap into the, the anxiety and the, um, the isolation and the disturbing circumstances that uh, that were just materialising around him. So he was able to capture that dislocated kind of experience and, frankly, that's a, that's a real triumph and I think that um, the body of work uh, collectively really do um, really add something very important to our collection. We've got a, a small holding of works that connect with the cup and that phase um, and most of them are fairly celebrational and so on, And, and uh, but this work adds a a jarring kind of insight into the psychology of the cup and I think it's a wonderful addition to our collection. Now, should we talk about Tanya Ferrier and James Kerr's work, which is based on Rottnest and its and its penal history, you know, as a jail yeah. for Indigenous people? Yes, yeah, certainly. 
Yeah, this was an um, important body, important project for Tanya um, that was conducted uh, and, rep- and shown at uh, Heathcote Museum in 2011 um, over the summer period. And uh, it was quite a sophisticated multifaceted exhibition, had a wonderful installation like, of, the, of one of the quad cells, which is associated with, um, with uh, Rottnest, of course. And really introduced uh, to some audiences the, the kind of tragedy associated with um, the incarceration, the histories of incarceration of Indigenous people at um, at Rotnest, and the development of the quad the quad itself, uh, which is now no longer a uh, a, uh, a residence, uh, you know, like a, a holiday um, home, if you like, uh, but it's more more of a, more, more of a, a museum, a precinct, but. Yeah. Uh, Tanya Ferry worked with James Kerr, who was uh, one of the uh, local photographers, uh, that, uh, and she collaboratively worked with James on uh, producing a series of images uh, which are really, really telling and, uh, and were very powerful and an important part of the show. Um, so, so what we see is a, a sequence and, uh, of images which is a reconstruction of the view of an audience looking into the mirror if they were, and they were shot at the quad, and so you get a sense of the uh, the spectator in front of the mirror looking into the quad, uh, if you like, in reverse, and in, in front of you, you see the two Indigenous people looking out at you. Yeah, um, as if from back and, in time. There's this weird time-travelling quality to this one. Exactly, exactly. So you, you, the audience is, you know, immediately asks the question, well, who, who am I looking at, what am I looking at, and so on. And... Uh, uh, so it does. It does because the, the title of the piece is called "If These Walls Could Speak," um, and it's related to the broader Quad Project and Wajamup, you know, the Rottnest Island experience for Indigenous people. Um, it explodes a kind of a politic, if you like, of institutional ignorance about the, the um, submerged history of Indigenous imprisonment on the island, and and uh, the Quad, uh, which had operated from 1839 to 1931 saw over 400 deaths there. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, other Aboriginal elders, Noel Nanup and Cedric Jacobs, were participants in the project and they're represented in the photographs. And uh, so it's quite a confronting series of images. Um, we've got white, there's also the, some white uh, people represented in the series as well, as a child as well as a, a woman who's putting up makeup looking to the mirror. But constantly in the background is the, the interior of the quad space. Now, now, what's important about the Quad, of course, is that it wasn't an Aboriginal prison, but it was also built by indentured Aboriginal labour, uh, which is mm. one of the first projects the indigenous uh, the, the um, labour was um, was used for to to build on on Rottnest Island. So, um, those histories run deep, and uh, they're not necessarily so well known, but. Fortunately, um, histories, the support of the Indigenous community and, uh, and key um, historians and uh, workers in the, in the network of uh, write, who are writing restaurant history help us to understand the significance of the site and, and the place in which the Quad played in Indigenous history in Western Australia. So this, this project is, is powerful. Um, this, the project at Heathcote was, was sophisticated and this is just really a, a fragment of that broader black and white story really um that uh, that tanya and james put together for the for the show i feel like you have taken us for a bit of a sail 
right through the river now and we've finished at Rottnest, but your sixth work is unusual. We're on another island, the Solomon Islands, with Jan Davis's artist book series. Why have you taken us offshore for this final work, mm-hmm. Andre? It seemed to fit, seemed to fit a, fit a gap, really. Um, yeah. as, as you say, we've been circulating, navigating our way through the shallow waters of Perth and Fremantle through various works, but Jan Davis's work Solomon is significant to the collection because of its um, because of its place in the print holding we have, which is centred around really the Fremantle Print Award, which was established in 1976. So the major part of our collection is print, print media, and including artist books, and it's certainly a strong passion of mine to build that component of the collection. And uh, even though print, let's say artist books, are an important part of artistic practice nationally and internationally, really from the from the 1960s, particularly in Australia, um, artist books didn't really find a uh, find a space in the, the print award till the 1990s. Um, and uh, the Arts Centre played a role in that, if you like, the award. The award had its own, uh, established its own uh, uh, award for artist books in 94. And so that engendered further submissions from artist bookmakers into the uh, and broadened the, the the scope of the of the of the exhibition and the um, project more broadly and solomon uh, for jan davis was the the first artist book that won the major award for the print award in 1995 and it's seven volumes in a beautifully bound casement um title solomon each volume is is titled as s o l o m o n so each um, particular volume relates to um, various aspects of, of uh, Solomon life, if you like. And if you're familiar with Solomon Islands, they're, 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 they're an independent nation, but they're closely associated with uh, Australian experiences, particularly on the, on the East Coast. So um, the series of images and texts within the book are fairly um, broad and poetic. There's a lot of poetic language and it references geography in the, in the books. It binds together, I guess, it goes to historical photographs and there's a record of the artistic own experience on the island, on the islands. And uh, it's kind of an interesting cipher, really, to, un- to, 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 to kind of investigate the experience of visiting a place like the Solomon Islands. And pictorially, and in terms of the way the graphics are utilised and the, and, the, and the typeface and typefaces throughout the volumes, it's a beautifully engaging book to, to negotiate from page to page. There's always lots of surprises to, uh, to find through the various volumes um, and really reveal some of the, the contemporary realities of what it's like to live on the islands. And there's references to the sea life, of course, um, habitation, this traditional life, there's the traditional references to traditional textiles, um, but there's also uh, insights into the struggles to do with pollution and, and, and so on uh, and degradation of the, of the natural world on that, in that beautiful in that beautiful place. So a series of books. Sorry. Can, can you explain the, the idea of the artist book? I'm, I'm not from a visual arts background, so I'm going to ask a, a layman's question maybe that the audience themselves might be thinking. The, the, the artist book, why was there a movement towards art, artist books? What, is, what does that provide the artist, compiling lots mm. of work in a book or, or that, that, that discipline of the artist book? Can you, can you just talk a little bit about that? Yeah. I guess the artist book really emerged Really, through modernity, really, let's say, let's say broadly, the early twentieth century, but but artists and books had a relationship to printing and bookmaking, really, from a much earlier stage. I mean, centuries ago. So, but the artist book itself was really a mechanism by which modernity or the artists of the modern period were able to represent and track ideas 
in the form of a book and and really as the the if you like the um this particular artistic media medium was able to be harnessed by artists to tell different uh, different to construct different experiences about uh, ideas so but the book format uh, takes various structures and various forms whether it's a, you know it could be on a, a conventional book with a with a spine it could be things that are that are just interleafed it could be things that are not made with um, paper or book materials at all so yeah. the artists really utilize that mechanism and the beauty of a book of course is that it can be embodied and can be held and generally held it could be enjoyed over time um, and it allows you to turn pages from left to right and so on in, in, in Western terms um, and to enjoy a series of connecting ideas and stories. It could be, it doesn't have to be a narrative at all. It could be just images and so on. A seamless sort of menu of layouts could, could, could occur through the reading of a book. It, and it's quite can be mobile as well. So the idea of the, the, the you know the, the binding of the ideas and the structures of the uh, the artwork itself off the wall, out of the gallery, and so on, uh, into uh, into someone's hands. Andre, just to wrap up, tell us, um, you know, in all arts institutions at the moment, everyone is adapting and trying to plan for the unplannable. Well, what's what's happening with, <laughs> with the collection? Are, are, are you are you planning to show the collection when we emerge and however that may look? Or tell us a little bit about what's happening with the City of Fremantle collection at the moment. Yeah, thanks, David. Look, it is a very exciting period. <laughs> I mean, um, um, uh, isolation allows you and a really, to some extent, this is kind of an enforced downtime. So mm. I don't have, often have an opportunity to uh, to look at the collection in, through a different light, in a different light. So um, I do have the responsibility with Rick Spencer to uh, do to present an exhibition when we emerge from this experience into the light, um, and it's this this downtime that permits opportunity to to review the collection in terms of how it works, um, in terms of really rethinking what sort of uh, outline we might like to present, what's what's the scope of the exhibition for the future, um, because the exp- the collection includes 50, over fifteen hundred pieces and many works by West Australian artists. Um, We've got opportunity to to really ask questions. Well, I certainly feel like I have asked questions of what I'm, how I'm thinking about the works. Things have changed, and, and invariably there's an opportunity to review the artist's ideas, the, the choice of materials from from a, something of a different perspective. And I think Rick is very much in tune with that that yeah. thinking. It's an opportunity, um, isn't it? I, I'm just about to interview Graham Lee from the Triffids, and the weird thing about art as things occur in the present it obviously affects past artworks and of course so much of the Triffid songwriting is about kind of isolation and being alone so listening back to their music last night there's this brand new layer that this situation has put on top of their art so this as you I think we were kind of alluding to it puts a new opportunity um to curators and artists in general because their work might have a new resonance exactly no it, it informs how you look at the collection that's maybe been acquired in, in, in previously, but it's also going to impact on the kind of policy thinking and acquisition thinking down the track in terms of 
recognition and uh, and uh, identification of, of works that are, that that have been currently made that connect with this time and place. Um, and how do we, what do we collect and what sort of things do we build on existing holdings that really allow us in the future, long long after I'm gone, to tell the story of COVID-19 and, and what artists were thinking about and what people were, were concerned about. So there's those sorts of things in play as well in terms of the ongoing conversations about, uh, about collecting collections. Thank you for listening this week. Hope you enjoyed a bit more of a slow meditative episode and that you got a bit of an insight into the City of Fremantle's art collection. Thanks as always to, to Odette Mercy and her Soul Atomics who provided the background music you've been hearing through this episode. It's a song called Ain't Nothing. Head to their band camp. Please support local musicians during this tough time because it's very hard for them to get out there and play. Near on impossible. But uh, hopefully that will be changing soon. Uh, make sure you subscribe. Let your friends know if you're a fan of the Art Centre and you visit us in person. This is one of the places where we'll be trying to connect you with the things that we do under normal circumstances. So this is a great place to keep in contact with your favourite artists, be they painters, musicians, craftspeople. We'll, uh, we'll see you next week.